Hello, listeners. This is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today is a special episode for me. I have been wanting to talk about opioid addiction in America for a long, long time and have not been able to figure out how to talk about it on the podcast. And as fate would have it, I got introduced to today's guest who is working on that very issue. So today, that is what we are going to talk about. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into this to try to understand how we came to think of addiction the way we do, what this epidemic is doing to the country, and the steps that we could take at a policy level to fix those problems and who might have vested interests in stopping us from doing so. So with that being said, I would like to welcome on the show today's guest, Percy Menzies. Hey, Percy, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. This is such a pleasure to join you and share my thoughts with this group. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm really looking forward to it. So just so our listeners can know a little bit about you and your background, how did you end up focusing on opioids and opioid addiction? What's your background? A lot of people ask me that question. I came into this field from a very different door. I came as an immigrant from India. I had a master's in pharmacy. Didn't know much about addiction. Or how, the most common addiction we saw, quote, in my own country was alcoholism. We did not even think it was a problem. I come here to the U.S. and I start working for a relatively small pharma company that had recently been acquired by the, by the chemical giant DuPont. And this company, Endo, their claim to fame was developing a range of medications from the opium poppy. They initially developed super heavy-duty pain medication like oxycodone and hydrocodone, the ones that caused a lot of problems. But it was not the company's fault. I'll talk about that later on. But what excited me so much was the discovery of an amazing medication called Narcan on Naloxone. And based on the chemistry of naloxone, they discovered another medication developed called naltrexone. And my job almost 35 years ago was to train physicians how to use these meds. And I was, as as somebody with a background in pharmacology, I was quite excited to share my knowledge. What I ran into was a complete roadblock. It was a wall. Say, I do not want to know about it. I'm not interested. Sorry. We are quite happy with what the present situation is and so on. And we couldn't make any headway. In a matter of, you know, after 20 years, with, with 18 years with the pharmaceutical company, I said, this is my calling. I am determined to change the field. And I left a very high-paying job in pharma to start a clinic to treat alcohol and drug addiction. Now, I'm an exception. I don't have, I'm not in recovery. And I have great sympathy for people and respect for people who are, who are gone into this field. But I came into this field through science. Wow, that's quite the story. So just to get the timeline right, when was that 20 years or 18 years you were working in pharma? I joined uh, DuPont in 1981. Okay. Okay, so from the 80s to the end of the 90s. And then the other question I wanted to ask you, just so that our listeners know, what 
do these medications that you so admire that you value so much narcan and how do i say it naltrexone naltrexone yes what do those do because i think some people might be more familiar with narcan because it's in the news a little bit more but if you could just tell us about what makes these special from the from the very beginning opioids have been used since time immemorial because there are historical reasons you know so historical references have been grown in Somalia, the opium poppy and so on. So opium has been synonymous with addiction. And the quest was to develop a non-addicting opioid. Can we develop an opioid that does not cause tolerance and does not cause euphoria and the addiction? So that was the quest. And that led initially to the development of naloxone. Now, what we also observed that people who are addicted to heroin or prescription opioids, mostly it was heroin, they would go away to residential treatments, they would go to jail. But when they came back home, back to the natural environment, they had a very high rate of relapse. Now, prior to the development of naltrexone, we had only one medication called methadone. Now, methadone, as you probably know, was a stopgap arrangement that was what was proposed by the Nixon administration, but it was never meant to be a long-term solution. The challenge was methadone being an opioid, it was increasingly difficult to get them off. Once you start them on it, they were were on it. So they said, can we develop a non-addicting drug that can protect them when they come back home? Because it's like you're going back to the swamp, you're going back to the the beehive. What, What can you do to protect yourself from being stuck. And that was naltrexone, the exact polar opposite of methadone. That's why methadone is called an agonist, naltrexone is called an antagonist. So this was developed as a passive restraint to, for people to relapse, you know, for, 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 to prevent people from relapsing. Now, Narcan or naloxone and naltrexone are identical, except for the half-life. That naloxone's half-life is only 30 minutes. That's why when you, when you reverse an overdose, you need to rush them to the ER or give them repeated doses of Narcan. Naltrexone, on the other hand, lasts for 24 hours. So you have a solid protection from, from accidentally or impulsively using opioids. If you use some opioids, you just wasted your money. So this gives you a fighting chance not to relapse. Right. So the way that, if I'm hearing you correctly, so I have some friends who are EMTs and stuff like that. So they carry Narcan on them. And that is to basically save people from dying of overdoses. So that's how we see that used in the field. Now, Trexone would be something that we would give somebody over a longer duration of time because it robs you of your high when you use opioids, which basically inhibits your ability to stay physically addicted to it because you're not getting the relief that your synapses are telling you that you need. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the whole purpose because think about that. There's a chronic infection going on. Mm. You need to like, you know, there's chronic malaria going on. So you take an anti-malarial when you go to a malaria infested area as a prophylactic. So Naltrex was developed as a non-addicting prophylactic to prevent people from relapsing. So think about naloxone, or, sorry, think about naltrexone 
as a daily vaccine or a month. Now it's also available as a monthly shot. So you take a pill of naltrexone for 24 hours, you're protected from the crocodiles that are swarming in the swamp. Mm, I see. No, I like that. So I've been in recovery for about 12 years now, and I've had plenty of friends come in and out. I'm very lucky that I've had a great many friends stay sober, but people in my life have not. Some of them have died from opioid addiction. And one of the things that seemed clear to me is that, you know, there's a good reason why NA and AA don't take a position on things like this. And that's because it would be a political position and that could destroy the overall organization as a whole. The Oxford group, which was the first version of AA, fell into that trap. And that's why it doesn't exist anymore. Now, um, what I have seen personally as, as someone in recovery is that for there to be a type of drug that would do this seems like a no-brainer, right? But that's not really what's happening. You said that there's political resistance against that, and we're going to get to that. But before we get that to that, because you've seen so much, I'd like to sort of t- talk about how we think about and how we talk about addiction in America. Because the 90s seem like a watershed moment in terms of how we talk about pain, addiction, and especially opioids. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that history, because that's sort of where the whole Sackler family (laughs) moment happens in America. Now, this is I'm glad you brought this up because I spent quite a bit of time really educating my audiences and people who want to talk about it. Opioids have been with us for over 150 years. It's It's not a new medication. So right from the time the real, the serious addiction really started, when we were able to extract the active ingredient from the opium poppy called morphine. When once morphine was extracted from the opium, the genie was out of the bottle. And now instead of giving opium which you have to smoke or really swallow, now you could just take the morphine, dissolve it in, say, ether or chloroform or alcohol. So the abuse just mounted. And many people believe that uh, morphine was God's gift to humankind. Another problem that happened in, eight, in uh, 1805, when they first um, isolated morphine. In 1859, just a couple of years before the start of the Civil War, he came up with an amazing, ama- amazing invention, the hypodermic needle. The hypodermic needle now allowed medications to be directly streamlined or mainlined into the bloodstream. And it could not have come at a better time. Soldiers were maimed, they were injured, so now they could inject morphine directly into the veins of the soldiers who were injured. They were incredibly grateful for the pain relief they received. So much so that many of them carried their own hypodermic needles and just, you know, went on. And over a period of time, they realized that these soldiers were given morphine, they couldn't get off it. And that disorder was that it was called the soldiers. Soldiers who were maimed and injured now got addicted. For the first time, they observed a phenomenon which later was, was, later was described as addiction in soldiers who had survived the Civil War. So this is how it started. Now, Opioids are wonderful medications to treat acute pain. 
And in the 80s, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were invaluable because we didn't have antibiotics, we didn't have medical tests. So anything that was, anything that you could do to mitigate the pain was done by morphine. That is why it was, so morphine was described, it was called, it was called the palliation of pain. They did not know how to treat it. So they just palliated the pain with, with opioids. Once we developed new, and this made physicians very lazy because physicians would come home, give them a shot of morphine, and the poor hapless patient thought these physicians were miracle workers. So it made physicians very, very lazy. First pill mills. Pardon me? Yes. The first pill mills. First pill mills, exactly. That's why you know, the historians have said that we come closest to the, the magic bullet is a syringe filled with morphine because everything was just, it's called palliation of pain. But they didn't know how to treat anything else. So all that they treated was treat the symptoms. Then they said, nope, under the Harrison Act, said, opioids have no place in, 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 in treatment. So you have to start looking at labs, looking at different tests and different medications. So slowly they fell out of use. Then in the, 19, in the 1950s and 60s, they developed the synthetic medications, oxycodone, hydrocodone. A number of these medications, uh, dilaudid and so on. But even then we knew that these are very addicting drugs that develop tolerance. So it was only reserved for the hospitalized patients. The only exception was, was uh, terminal cancer. So everything was fine. That's why even with DuPont, when I was a rep, my job was to train physicians how to use these pain medications. But we never ever said, doctor, just write them a script and just keep giving them. We, we promoted them in a very responsible manner. And when there were some issues, you know, the, the states took appropriate actions for it. So they came up with, with, because when it comes to opioid addiction, the doctors have a pretty critical role to this is not like cigarette companies going directly to the consumer. So you might have all the medications you want, but unless the doctor writes for it and briefs the patient on it, nothing can happen. And unfortunately, when it comes to addicting medicines, there's always that uh, temptation to become a pill. So the first way the state stopped it was they told all physicians that you have to write for your prescription for opioids in triplicate, three copies of each script. Give one copy to the patient, one copy you give the keep for your records, one copy you send to the DEA. And believe me, a lot of the opioid addiction, uh, prescription opioids were stopped. Now, in the 60s and 70s, we had another unusual situation happen with heroin coming into this country, primarily from France. And there was a big issue about the GIs in Vietnam getting addicted to, to heroin. Remember, it was during the Vietnam War. So all that was, they said, let's um, find ways to treat addiction to opioids with the appropriate medications. So, if you, so by cutting out the supply of the heroin coming in from France and reducing and, and getting physicians to write for fewer scripts for, for prescription opioids, we successfully ended opioid And that's what the famous movie, The French Connection, is. The French Connection, yeah. exactly that, you know, because 
you have to see it as a, as a, as an epidemic as a public as a public uh, health issue the pathogen is heroin and what spreads the what spreads the epidemic are two things supply and price the supply is plentiful and the price is low the addiction spreads so what happened here in the 90s we thought everything was was great but it was hunky dory and you had this irresponsible company you know Purdue Frederick that came up with this new concept called chronic pain and they just you know and they just played wrong with it saying doctor please treat chronic pain as a fifth vital sign so they scared doctors into saying if you have diagnosed chronic pain the chronic pain was very subjective please write scripts for op- prescription opioids there's no fear of uh, causing addiction And that's because of the special structure of the cotton aspect of oxycotton which was slow release over time not peak all at once it feels ridiculous saying this out loud but the argument was that because it didn't have that peak you couldn't get addicted to it because addicts are chasing that peak so because it's time release like you're staying at a steady level i think anybody who's like dabbled in drugs knows that that's like prima facie absurd but that was the line they were using yeah because when we were promoting the medication oxycodone hydrocodone we were in in doses of 5 mg 10 mg so here they came up with, initially they started you know promoting the liquids the ms container things of that sort but the the culprit really is creating this new disorder called chronic pain and chronic pain went from 5 million 10 million 20 million 40 million 60 million it just was a figure that they just came up with and they tried very aggressive ways to really rope physicians so physicians also have to take some responsibility for for creating that because this could not have happened if the physicians had listened to the alarm bells so even when patients say you know when patients came back and said doctor I'm out of the medication this is you know I'm, i really need more of it the drug company rep said please doctor that is under treating the pain give them a bigger dose because they need so this created just an absolute monster that we continue to deny and everyone the federal government the medical societies drug companies everyone you know and even uh, groups that were, that were uh, accrediting hospitals they said yes continue to treat pain aggressively look at the mess we have and once this mess this happened then we really said okay we need to do something about it and we have a perfect convergence of circumstances the mexican mafia they lost a lot of their market for marijuana because many states like oregon were growing their own marijuana so they found a perfect cash crop growing the opium poppy and extracting the opium converting into heroin and smuggling it So in other words they brought heroin as a generic form of your prescription opioids. So you have opioids, heroin and the stream just and the and the two rivers that the two streams merge into creating this opioid epidemic. It's really astounding, right? I mean, I think it's especially bleak that the trial communities for oxycotton tended to be deindustrialized or still industrialized with manual labor 
parts of the U.S. because those people are prone to injury. So rather than expanding any other type of care or worker rights or wages or any of that, they became the avenues through which this epidemic got started because they were often injured or in pain or whatever. They were like, they were a vulnerable population that you could take advantage exactly. of. Exactly. They were all people you know, where the miners had lost their jobs. They were people of the Rust Belt you know, who had lost their job because the steel mills were closing and so on. All this, that's why many people describe opiate addiction as a disorder of despair. Mm-hmm. And there were physicians more than happy to you know, take advantage of it. And they just prescribed it. Now, some people, you know, not all, but many physicians you know, naively fell for this, but they have to take a responsibility for saying, what could we have done? Mm-hmm. And then you saw what was happening in, in, in places like Florida, where the laws were so strict that you would have people driving in from Kentucky and Ohio, you know, standing outside the physician's office at five in the morning, and there'll be 150 people standing outside to get yeah. a script. So it was just, and yet we were seeing this happening right in front of us, just ignore it. Right. And I think that that's part of how we think about addiction. There's sort of a sequel to what became the opioid epidemic and how fentanyl is now replacing that. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to talk about something that you and I have spoken about before. And it is the incredibly naive, almost ideologically, both progressive and libertarian way that people talk about using opioids. There's the guy, Jonathan Hari, I think from the UK, who's given that a famous TED talk on this. And then there's also, I th- believe a gentleman from Columbia University who's written a book yes, about- Carl Hart. Yeah, Carl Hart, which is like drug use for adults. And he like almost brags about how he can recreationally use heroin. So I was wondering if you could sort of like describe what these people believe, because it's very hard for me to like fit it into my head. It seems so beyond the pale. Right. I think I'm, this is one of the most frustrating parts of what I'm trying to do is you have groups that are misinformed, misguided, but funded very well by groups to say that we need to legalize drugs. So they were all followers of Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman, who really believed that the marketplace can take care of all these problems. And we build, and then I, my argument is that the marketplace does not have morality. The marketplace is morally neutral. So, and when you start, you know, when you start legalizing drugs, it is a problem for the poor people. Our jails and prisons are not filled with people with MDs and PhDs. They're poor people, you know, who end up. But these people just have been on this movement called, you know, drug legalization. And the other challenge you have to understand is that when these drugs are taken in the natural form, like when people were smoking opium or when the Andean people were chewing coca leaves, Yet the active ingredient was still covered in a little bit of a container that that protected them. Now the gene is out and that cocaine, which is normally 2% in a coca leaf, now is 100%. Or the morphine extracted from opium and converted into heroin is so potent that the body cannot buffer it. So once you start using it and you inject it in different ways, you have not a chance of avoiding the addiction. 
So trying to say, you know, I'm going to use heroin in a very responsible way. I know how to do it. It's a, it's really is an oxymoron. It doesn't work that way. So with so much heroin coming in and drugs coming in, these people are talking about it. And that's the sad part. Of all the work I have done, I've never seen a, a distraught mother from the inner city saying, if we just legalize drugs here, we'll be one happy community. It is these misguided people sitting in academia, walking the halls of academia that are promoting these things. It's really unfortunate. So they have been saying, let's legalize drugs. And I and and let's and my contention is that let's let's criminalize bad treatment. So you know, and I asked them, what, what happens if people get addicted? They said, look, addiction is a function of of healthy contacts, of what are called you know, of, of healthy links. Mm-hmm. If you really have healthy contacts, addiction, addiction is not a problem. So they are misguiding people. And look at the deaths. The figures that came out, 96,000 people died of a drug overdose. And there is not even, and these people don't even have an iota of an explanation, what can be done about it. All they are saying, if you legalize drugs, people will lose interest. It doesn't, just the opposite happens. Because in this country, everything becomes big business. We don't have a sense of moderation. Mm-hmm. See what is happening with marijuana. See what is happening with, um, you know, with drugs. So once you start legalizing, there'll be all sorts of ways to promote it. So what they are doing is actually very scary. And my response is that I am, and, and everything is now given a very nice sounding name called harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And I'm on a mission here promote harm prevention. Mm-hmm. We have preventative medications. Why not use it? And this is my calling. And what and I'm not I'm not I'm not just talking about what I'm doing. I opened a clinic in St. Louis that we treat close to 4,000 heroin addicts a month. And it's an open invitation to anyone. They can call me and they can come and visit my clinic to show that addiction is a very treatable illness and it can also be cured. So they are basing what they are saying on a completely misleading description of addiction as an incurable disease. And it is not an incurable disease. It's a very curable illness, condition, disorder that I can get you back to normal, get you back well on the right medications. Why is, and I'm asking people this, why is there this visceral opposition to using naltrexone. Naltrexone was dropped, you know, it should be more extensively used. You're willing to use Narcan, which I promoted naloxone. If naloxone is used so aggressively and so forcefully, why not use naltrexone as a preventative medication? And we know that- Yeah, why not? So why not? Why not? Prevention is one of the most effective strategies to end an addiction. No chronic condition, I've been saying this, has ever been effectively ended by using an addicting medication. So we are using OSD, opioid substitution treatment, as the only option. And we have to give them more options. Why not be open-minded to use a non-addicting drug like naltrexone to prevent people, especially those that have been successfully treated, from relapsing? And so we are saying that because people relapse, let's just give them an addicting drug and let's just go on. And in a situation where we have no strategy 
to curtail or cut off the supply of opioids. Your opioid substitution medications inadvertently become fuel for the opioid body, for the porn body. That's exactly what is happening. And the restrictions on opioids or methadone or buprenorphine, you know, has to be there because otherwise you would have another disaster. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it seems like there are vested interests, whether it's from the methadone lobby or whoever, that are have a stake in keeping opioid, what is it, replacement treatment? It's called OST, opioid substitution. Substitution treatment. treatment. Okay. Keeping that in place as the treatment regime, because of course it's good for their shareholders. Whereas it seems to me like what you're offering is like you said, you know, an ounce of pre- prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, right? That The old line. So, but let me ask you this, right? So one of the responses I've heard to this is that simply treating addiction with medication isn't enough, right? People who come from 12-step programs, as I have, will often say this. And I think that there's a kernel of truth to this. Like if you, especially if you've gone very far down the scale, you do have almost a spiritual sickness. You have ruined your life, right? And you're incredibly disaffiliated. And so a medication isn't going to be, be able to do all of it for you in terms of restoring yourself to sanity. What would you say to that as a response to the idea that we can treat and cure addiction? I'm, I'm so glad you brought that point up, right? Because we tell people that when there are certain conditions, one of them is, uh, is an opioid addiction to the alcohol or opioid, because it's, it's risky or dangerous because it invades our biological instincts of survival. A survival which is so essential for human beings that allows us to flourish and thrive now throws it into, into a survival. The addiction tells you, Emmett or Percy, you don't need anything else. Just keep feeding, you know, just keep feeding. So you go from being a thriving person to almost causing yourself to be homeless. So you are surviving. And survival is a very dangerous situation to be in. Because when you are in a survival mode, you will do anything to survive. Lie, cheat, steal, sell your body. So recovery is not just giving them a pill. It's not like saying you, you had a strep throat. Let me give you a five-day course of antibiotics and it'll be fine. When they come to us, and I describe addiction as Humpty Dumpty, it takes a lot of effort to put them back. They need, they have issues with the financial issues, marital issues, legal issues, everything else. And it's not just in the mind. If you do what are called uh, functional MRIs, you can actually see the density of synapses in the executive function of the brain, you know, into, into the, into the which what I describe as the, uh, as the wizard brain. It becomes less because you don't need synapses now to maintain the height, to maintain your grades in school. You don't need those synapses to, to multitask. All you need is synapses to get your next heart. So the density in, it, in medicine, we call it synaptic pruning. The synaptic pruning occurs when you only focus on getting your next heart. So you have to almost rebuild their brain when they are back into survival mode. I describe that as reinverting Maslow's pyramid. Because survival is not the state human beings are supposed to. And that's what I have an argument you know, just like if you are homeless, you don't end homelessness by opening homeless shelters and opening a soup kitchens. 
or giving them a key to a one bedroom fully furnished apartment so ending homelessness is a very involved process same is the case with addiction that's why at our clinic it's a long process we help them to enroll into medicaid we help them with jobs we help them with job training we help them with housing because for many of them continuing to living in the same drug infested environment is a sure fire way to relapse so we need to get them out of it mm-hmm. no that's But, absolutely true right there's so much that goes into getting the whole person to recover and it seems to me the i think the the uncharitable interpretation people make of what you say when you say it's treatable is that you're saying yeah just give them a pill it's fine but that's not really what you're doing at your clinic because of course you aren't and i think people have a very limited imagination when it comes to how difficult it is to extricate yourself from homelessness many of the people who are homeless and i mean like visibly on the street homeless not necessarily you know shelter to shelter day in day out still working a job i'm talking about people who are living in their own filth who have had their dignity robbed of them by their addiction are usually mentally ill and or addicted to drugs and just listeners i want you to think about like the last time you went to the dmv and think about all of the paperwork that you had to have to get that driver's license and then think about what your driver's license or your state id whatever it is allows you to do Okay, now imagine you don't have any of that stuff and you haven't had it for years and there is no one in your family you can talk to anymore because you have so burned the bridges, right? This is why I think treating the whole per- person is so necessary at clinics like yours, Percy. But also because I think it should help us understand why treating somebody with something that stops the high that blocks that is so crucial because one of the things that people don't tell you and this is true for any type of recovery is that healing is often more painful than the wound was itself so when you are fully conscious of the things you have to do to get your life back it is excruciatingly painful it is scary and you have two things telling you now that you need to keep using and one is the way these drugs have restructured your brain and the other is your fear and shame around the current state of your life right so to take one of those off the table right the 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 synapse reworking means that you just have to solve for the one which is done with community with programs with all types of things right i mean i think Percy, you and I are aligned on this as a strategy for recovery. Well, absolutely, because uh, and this was my calling. So when uh, when I first opened my clinic, I treated some very high-profile people, but I said, no, this is not the. I really want the people who are in the worst situation, the people who are homeless, people who are coming out of the correctional systems. And the the saddest part was that they did not even know that addiction is treated. they just thought okay my you know my life is gone i'm told i have an incurable disease and i have to just you know continue this so they continue to rely more and more on the behavioral aspects of it and that is more difficult to you know to 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 change than anything else now i in st louis i was particularly impact i was affected i was really disturbed by what is happening in the black community so i said you know this has to end because they are They are stigmatized. There are hardly any resources, even for basic medical care. 
So I said, this is what I'm going to do. I started approaching the black pastors and I met them. And I said, look, we are very fortunate that we have so much more funds now available. I'd like to really reach out. I'd like to educate the people and so on. They were absolutely astonished that there's something that can be done. And this one particular church said, we want you to open a clinic in our premise, right in our church. Now, whenever you're trying to open a treatment center, what's the biggest problem we face? Not in my backyard, NIMBY. Mm-hmm. In our case, NIMBY changed to IMFI, in my front yard. The church said, we are not going to make any bones about you know, denying that we don't have any problems here. We have big problems. Please come. We will welcome you with open arms. And Arca has a clinic that can treat you on an immediate basis. So we opened an, a walk-in clinic. So if you are struggling with, with uh, withdrawal symptoms, you have issues, you don't have to say, come back in two weeks' time. Come right now, we'll start the treatment. And the mm-hmm. treatment is a medical treatment, not just telling you, close your eyes and things will be fine. No, you are hurting. You are in pain. We will give you appropriate medications to control the withdrawal symptoms, to reduce the anxiety, help you sleep through the night. And once the detox has started, then the rebuilding process starts. And these people are so grateful. Often they will say, how come we never heard of them? And when we are saying to protect you from relapsing, we are going to give you this non-addicting group called naltrexone. Initially, they were very skeptical. But now the whole go, now the whole cry is, I want the shot. The shot is the is a 30-day injection of naltrex, so that lasts for 30 days. So the new cry is, I want the shot. Mm-hmm. Because it is completely changing these people's you know, attitude, their well-being, they are maintaining jobs, they are reconnecting with the families. It's an amazing transformation that just so fills me with joy. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want to I want to transition out talking about how things are shifting now, right? And one of the ways they're shifting now is how fentanyl has come onto the scene. And and since you're a pharma guy, I was wondering if you could explain to us what fentanyl is and what makes it different than opioids we've seen in the future because I've talked to people who've recovered from addiction and homelessness. I've talked to caseworkers, you know, in California, and I've talked to people who've lost their children to fentanyl poisoning, who were meaning to take some other drug recreationally and had fentanyl in it, and they just they died. And the thing that they always say is that fentanyl changes everything. That is what they've come to believe. So I was wondering if you could give us some perspective on what it is and uh, what we're facing when we're facing this drug. Fentanyl is what is called a synthetic opioid. It is identical to goes to, uh, to morphine or heroin or any of those. It goes to a very specific part of your brain called an opioid receptor, and it binds with it. But because it is such a potent analgesic, once it binds, it will cause a massive activation of the opioid receptors. And the massive activation, obviously, analgesia, but also gives you a high. But it is so potent that we measure fentanyl in what is called micro. It's very difficult to understand, differentiate, because there's a milligram, the thousand micrograms makes a milligram. And a two milligram dose or three milligram dose of uh, fentanyl can kill. So when they're bringing it in, it is extremely profitable 
to smuggle um, fentanyl in because you can make just a few kilograms, maybe two kilograms of fentanyl. Two, one kilogram of fentanyl is 10 million uh, micrograms. You can imagine that. So when they're bringing this in. That's a lot of doses to sell. A lot of doses. But what they are doing is a sad part of it is so the, the people who are selling it, they don't know the difference between a milligram and a microgram, but they're just throwing it into the mix. So that is the dangerous part. And they're not doing it in, the, in, in pharmaceutical labs. They're just mixing it with food instruments and measures. So the batch of the drug that you get, you have no idea what it is going to, you know, how much of, of, of fentanyl that's going to have. And now fentanyl is so ubiquitous that almost everything is laced with fentanyl. Your illegal uh, benzos, your clonopin, your, your, your ativan, your um, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, everything contains fentanyl. Right. They even make, they even make, um, even though the company that uh, makes them doesn't exist anymore, the iconic MD50 pills, the blue Oxycontin pills are actually pretty much just fentanyl. (laughs) There are a small amount of fentanyl that they have, but that's enough to kill you. So that's the thing. So that's why this morning, the the author who wrote the book, um, Dreamland, Sam Kenyonis, he wrote a Mm -hmm. follow-up book and he was saying that fentanyl is so dangerous that you don't have people who have used fentanyl for five and 10 years. They are going to die in a matter of uh, months or a year. Or two. Mm-hmm. And it's so dangerous. You are playing Russian roulette at, at a very, very risky because There are people who have used heroin and they have survived for a period of time. But fentanyl, you don't have any long-term fentanyl uses because fentanyl is a fantastic drug to be used in the hospital. And, you know, for, for acute pain, that's why there used to be fentanyl patches that release small amounts of micro doses of fentanyl to, to treat acute pain. But now it has become a street drug. And now there are other analogs of fentanyl that are even stronger becoming out. No so way. that's the year. And some of them, there is also you know, another analog of fentanyl called, called carfentanyl. The carfentanyl is called the animal tranqu- tranquilizer. It has no place in medicine. So if you want to tranquilize uh, an elephant or a tiger, then that is filled with the, the dart is filled with the carfentanyl. Mm-hmm. There have been a few cases in which this come out. Right? Hopefully it doesn't happen, but there have been cases in which they confiscated carfentanyl in Canada and so on. So we really have a very, very serious situation on the horizon. And that is why a prevention strategy is even more critical because we cannot lose people in the in the prime of their life. We are using we are losing people in the twenties and thirties. It is tragic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was and, I was talking to a friend of mine, Tom Wolf. I know I can use his name because he's very uh, vocal activist, formerly homeless, formerly addicted to fentanyl. And one of the things that he has described is waking up next to four of his friends, all who died in the night. They all took the same batch of stuff and only he survived. And I don't think people like understand what it does to a society when you have so many people experiencing that and when that's just a common thing. So I was wondering if we could close out here, Percy, with what is your vision for America in how to take a preventative action against these things, right? Like, 
policy prescriptions, ideas we should have in our back pockets to think about this, whatever it is, just lay it out for me. Yeah, I think we can, we need to offer people a whole range of choice. The first thing is educating people that opiate addiction is a very treatable condition. What we are seeing is that once they start using heroin, they say they, they become so fatalistic, my life is gone. And they wait for months and months and years to seek treatment. So the first thing I want to tell our younger people, people that if you think you started using heroin, opioids, seek treatment right away. We have funds that can treat you right away. So do not despair. There's hope for getting better. Secondly, we have to come up with some very clear strategies. You know, yes, harm reduction is a very important place to play, the important place in the strategy, but it cannot be replacing treatment. So today what I'm seeing is a very dangerous trend, saying just give them all the, you know, distribute free syringes, uh, syringes and Narcan and Naloxone, let's open you know, free injection sites, what are called the safe injection sites, to solve the problem. That's a very dangerous and a highly destructive uh, goal that people are following. And many states are now are falling into this. We want to create more clinics, what ARCA does. Okay? And ARCA has the, you know, has the facility. That we, whatever we do is not some kind of a secret sauce. We have been able, we will be happy to share our protocols, train people. Okay? The success of ARCA is really based on two things. Humanizing the treatment and making it attractive. If you look at the if you look at the treatment of uh, you know if you look at treatment for opiate and alcoholism, we have criminalized it, demonized it, medicalized it, done everything except humanized it. There is the human element. Once you humanize it, then you make it attractive to the patient. Be surprised the transformation that occurs and how people will seek help. And we have effective treatments. Yes, we have medications like buprenorphine and methadone, okay? we have to use them in the appropriate way. But we cannot, we cannot uh, ignore the preventative aspects. So today what the attacks you see on naltrexone are misguided writers, people in recovery, not to name the people, it's just, it's just it's, it's, I think it's almost immoral. You have to give every weapon, when we have a, when we have a raging fire, we use every weapon on hand to use. We don't say we don't believe in this or don't believe in that. For crying out loud, you have only three medications to treat it. Methadone, buprenorphine, or suboxone, and naltrexone. And we want to ignore the one-third of those medications. It makes no sense. Yes, yeah, so that's a message. It's a pretty treatable illness. And we would like to open more clinics, train more people, especially. And I would like to really see a consumer advocacy. See, the only thing that has prevented us that, you know, look at what we did for the treatment of AIDS and HIV and AIDS. Look at the phenomenal success. Why, have, why can't we replicate that in our We see more people, even at the height of the AIDS epidemic, we did not see as many people die as now. So let's learn from them and let's, you know, create more advocates, not these people who are misguided uh, people who are just saying, you know, that let's just focus on the high and not on the harm. That's not the message. The people, the people are dying, 
let's save every life because every life is sacred. All right. Well, that's wonderful. I think we'll end it on that note. Percy, thank you so much for being here. If people want to reach out to you or they want to learn more about your clinic, uh, is there a website they can go to? to they can go to Arca Midwest, A-R-C-A Midwest.com. Great. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that you can also can email me. It's, it's menzies at Arca Midwest.com. And I'm very good about responding to emails. And I would really welcome comments and so on because we are fighting a battle together. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, so we are called and we are saying all hands on deck. Let's literally do it. I really am grateful for the invitation, Emmett, and let's keep in touch. I'd love to, Percy. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Stay safe out there. Thank you.